This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. I am delighted today to be joined by my good friend, Lance Plyler. Dr. Lance Plyler is a genuine humanitarian hero. He directs World Medical Missions for Samaritan's Purse, which I think is the greatest charitable organization in the world. As part of his work, Dr. Plyler treats victims of war, typhoons, earthquakes, infectious diseases, and just about everything else in places ranging from, but by no means limited to, Haiti, the Philippines, Nepal, South Sudan, Mosul, Iraq, Liberia, and New York City uh, in COVID. So um, if anybody wants to see a genuinely great movie, a movie that demonstrates religious faith and love of God in action, I recommend the movie Facing Darkness, where Lance is effectively the star. It's a documentary, but Lance is effectively the star. It is the story of Samaritan's Purse in Liberia in 2014. And uh, it's just um, an extraordinary uh, documentary that um, Eric and I showed it to uh, each of our kids individually so they could really understand it and ask questions. I encourage everyone to do the same and get to know Lance in a different way. But for now, we're going to focus on Lance's chosen passage, which is Isaiah 6, 1 through 7. So Lance, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. Hey, Mark. Thank you so much. Uh, It's uh, just an honor to be here. Um, I'm humbled by your introduction, and uh, I would argue about being the star of that movie. Uh, Maybe Kent Brantley or some of our our whole team, really. But but thank you so much for your kind words. No, it it is the whole team. It's certainly Kent Kent Brantley and Nancy and Ken Isaacs um, and Franklin Graham and you and and I was telling someone the other day, I don't know if you believe me or not, but God makes an appearance in the film. He, he sure does. When the, when the plane has that error and has to turn around and that, in fact, changes the whole story and save those lives. I'm not going to give any more of it away, but um, he, he literally and actually does. So uh, it's the best movie we've ever seen. It was really surreal and just miraculous. Um, I've never experienced God as I did in Liberia. And um, I have to give a shout out, too, for our, our partner at SIM. Um, who was right with us all along, and and Doctors Without Borders, MSF. Before we get into Isaiah 6-1, why don't we just talk about that story for a little bit. So this is Liberia 2014, the summer of 2014. Ebola is ravaging Monrovia. Yes. And uh, you and SIM have a hospital open in Monrovia. It's the only medical facility open to treat the poor. And uh, you have two doctors there, and they predictably contract Ebola. Yes. And how did you save them? It was the hand of God. I mean, I, and I'm not just saying that, Mark. Um, it was just a series of uh, events, a miracle after miracle after miracle. I mean, uh, basically, to start off with, as I mentioned, too, we had this team of clinicians uh, that still had to continue uh, treating the Liberians that were stricken with Ebola. But then we had to manage our own, too, you know, uh, Nancy Ripaw and Kent Brantley. And so they provided around the clock um, stellar clinical care miraculously, we were able to access one of uh, four series of this novel uh, antiviral therapy called ZMAP. And it just Uh, happened to be in the neighboring country of Sierra Leone. Correct. Yeah, they were going to utilize it for another uh, patient, but they they chose not to. And so um, we called it forward and um, we were able to access it. And um, 
just really honestly in the nick of time because uh, they were really in the terminal stages of Ebola when we gave them uh, ZMAP. This is uh, Kent and Nancy. Um, yes. And you were instructed, I'm not sure by whom, but who instructed you under no circumstances should you split the dose? Uh, a lot of the experts I talked to, I mean, it was another godsend um, at the time, and this has all been disclosed now. Um, there's a great book um, called um, Crisis in the Red Zone uh, by Richard Preston. He also wrote, um, you know, The Hot Zone. But um, Lisa Hensley was, um, you know, very instrumental in introducing us to a lot of her colleagues that had been developing a ZMAP for a number of years, um, and they had just administered a ZMAP to um, macaque monkeys. It was unpublished at the time, and it was very successful uh, in treating them. And uh, just based on, um, you know, uh, some of the information I gleaned from them and just through a lot of prayer, we corporately, you know, we decided to, uh, we felt like we didn't have any other choice. We, we administered it to Kent and Nancy. Because if you, um, splitting the dose was important because you only had the dose for one person. So your choice was either give it to one person, let the other person die, yeah. or go against all the experts, split the dose, mm -hmm. and probably have them receive an insufficient amount to save them. It, exactly. That was the dilemma. But um, again, that was just another step of, of faith and, and, and miracle. So we split it. We gave the first um, vial to Kent, the second vial to Nancy, and then we were able to access Phoenix Air and fly Kent home, and miraculously, they produce um, ZMAP in Kentucky, and they were actually able to get um, one of the other series of vials, and so they transferred uh, that uh, series of ZMAP down um, to Emory, and Emory, uh, once Kent arrived, they gave Kent, you know, the uh, second um, and third vial, and then we gave Nancy vial two and three, flew her to Emory, and they gave her the third vial, so it, it worked out and it, it was like I said, we could have never orchestrated that in a million years. It was it was a God thing. Absolutely. And, and that comes through very clearly in the movie uh, Facing Darkness, which I encourage everyone to see. So let's move on to your uh, chosen text. So um, I, I think I we, we should also preface this by saying that you're a deeply devout Christian, in fact, a, a Christian medical missionary. Yeah. And um, I. I, um, Mark, uh, just for clarity, I don't work um, long term in any one country, but I visit multiple countries um, throughout the year is how I serve as a Christian medical missionary. Absolutely. And uh, I know how you've done so at really great physical risk um, going to places where the odds of you contracting a deadly disease were very high, but you do it. So let's talk about uh, your chosen passage. So please tell us what happens in Isaiah 6, 1 through 7 or 1 through 8, and uh, and then why it's important to you. Well, thank you. Yeah, I know. Um, yeah, you had uh, informed me that uh, Senator Cotton had uh, used some of the same scripture. And um, so as we both uh, mentioned, um, you know, I think we can just glean even greater insight as we look into it. And uh, I appreciate uh, Dr. Cotton choosing the same verses. But um, this story unfolds. It's basically it's a commissioning of the prophet Isaiah to do the work for the, um, you know, for the people of Israel. And um, it's interesting, Mark, it starts off, it says, in the year that King Uzziah died. And I, I think what's so awesome about this scripture is it's a comparison and contrast of King Uzziah and the throne of God, you know, the, the throne, the, the, you know, man's throne, uh, King Uzziah, uh, and, and then again, the throne of God. And then it's a comparison of Isaiah being commissioned as a prophet, and and then a generalization to ourselves as you know followers of of the faith um, to be commissioned too. It's a recognition of the holiness of God and our iniquity. How in and of ourselves we are we are unable. We are not 
capable of orchestrating you know the administration of zmap or or whatever the calling is it, it is from god and um it's interesting just to start off mark it, it it refers to king uzziah king uzziah was a king in judah as you know in israel there was no good king in judah there was only a few there was hezekiah and there was uzziah but even uzziah fell short it it mentions that he um provided a leadership in in uh, judah for about 52 years and it was a time of peace but he did not do away with the high places, which were uh, places of idol worship, as he was instructed. And so he was stricken with leprosy. And that's how his kingdomship, if you will, it, it ended. But he was a good king. But in comparison to the throne of God, he was nothing. And that's the comparison and contrast. And immediately, it, it, it immediately describes this vision that uh, Isaiah has um, before he's commissioned by God. And he sees God sitting on the throne. And as you'll know, Mark, um, many times kings will wear a they, they will wear a, a, a long gown um, with a long train of, of the robe. And this says that God's robe filled the whole temple. And that's just a sign of his greatness. There's two seraphim there, which are angels with six wings. And um, it's interesting just to highlight just for a second their wings. The first two wings covered their eyes. That was a sign of humility. The second two wings covered their feet. That was a sign of submission. And the third wings enabled them to fly. And that was a sign of obedience. And so we have this picture of this incredible holiness of God. In fact, one of the angels. Wait, but let me just uh, stop there for a moment. Why do yeah. you assume that flying is a sign of obedience? Because I, I, when I read the passage, I didn't think of that symbolism, which is magnificent. But covering face is certainly humility. Yes. Covering feet, you said, was what? A sign of submission to God. Submission, submission to yeah. God. But flying seems to be like, if you're humble and you submit yourself to God, then you can fly. Then you can go to all kinds of places that you would not have been capable of doing before, and you can serve God in all kinds of ways that would have otherwise been impossible. Mark, I think that's um, that's great insight, and I don't argue with you uh, with that interpretation at all. I think that's awesome. Because, you know, yes, and it's a, perhaps the Jewish Christian thing, because, you know, there's no Hebrew word for obedience. Right. And that's, that's, that's why, a, you know, we have the notion of Abraham argues, as, as to you, Abraham argues with God, Moses argues with God, but that's just, yeah, an interesting juxtaposition. And when you look at 6.3, that really reminds me of you, because it says, the angels are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. What we're being taught here is that God is to be found on earth, that yes. if we want to be godly, we do his work on earth. So we don't do his work by going to a mountaintop and engaging in uh, ceaseless prayer. That is not a godly act, at least in a Jewish context. It's doing what it's being. It's you are the exemplar of it. You identify people who are suffering, you identify people who are vulnerable and at insane physical risk to yourself, you take it in order to do uh, the work of God for the benefit of all of his children. And so that's what I see. The whole earth is full of his glory. They're telling us how and where to find God. Exactly. Yeah, I agree with you, Mark. I think uh, God, you know, um, he admires prayer, he admires worship, but he calls us to go forward into uh, the loneliest places, the darkest places. And um, it's interesting um, when the uh, angel refers to God, he says, holy, holy, holy. I believe that the Hebrew word is kadash, kadash, yes. kadash, holiness. This is the only time I believe in the Old Testament that there is a threefold reference to the attributes of God. And it's almost like he's saying, holy, holy, or holiest. It's just, a, an, again, a great recognition of who God is. And, and then we, as we go on in the verses, we'll see that 
there's an incredible recognition of his sinfulness, Isaiah, the prophet, um, his sinfulness and his iniquity and his, you know, he he's just overwhelmed that he's in the presence of God. He is not worthy. That's right. And he says, um, so after the angels basically declare that God is to be found on earth and the whole earth is full of his glory, Isaiah says, woe is me, I am ruined, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. What's interesting to me here is that Isaiah takes personal responsibility. He doesn't blame the, he acknowledges the iniquity of the community, but he doesn't blame it. He starts by saying, I'm a man of unclean lips. He starts by accepting that personal responsibility. Exactly. And I think um, for us to be commissioned effectively by God, Mark, that is a a step that all of us must take, that we must acknowledge um, where we are. Uh, Without the presence of God in our lives, we are sinful. You know, we fall short of the glory of God. And and he says, woe is me. I am for I am undone. I am lost. He, He recognizes that place, that unholy place. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. And, and this is, I think, subject to interpretation too, Mark. But I think when I think of unclean lips, you know, I think of the mouth, um, you know, that is exudes everything um, unholy about us at times, you know, when we say things that are inappropriate or, or we do things that are inappropriate. It's a symbolism of our uh, own inequity. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, when, when you um, moved, um, I believe in 2011, you had a successful internal medicine practice in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And then you decided to devote yourself to Christ by being a Christian medical missionary and in facilitating so many medical missionaries and able to do the work of God um, in so many different ways in so many dangerous places. Did you get a call like this? Yeah, you know, Mark, um, actually, when I started my practice, um, when I completed my residency in 1997, even then, I was aware of uh, Samaritan's Purse and the Graham family. I had great admiration for them. And and um, it was interesting. Very early on, it was almost like I had this. Uh, I, I re- really just wanted to be strongly affiliated with Samaritan's Purse and, and um, commit myself to them. But I really needed um, uh, uh, some years of clinical experience. And so I, I had a private practice for 15 years. And while I had that practice, once or twice a year, I would uh, I would go on volunteer trips with World Medical Mission um, uh, and Samaritan's Purse uh, to uh, our partner hospitals around the world. So. During my time of practice, um, I was engaged in these um, clinical outreaches. But you're right, in 2011, I left my practice um, full-time um, to devote myself completely to Samaritan's Purse. So does, when you read Isaiah 6, 1 through 7, and you think about your own experience or the experience of, of, I mean, you probably know as many Christian medical missionaries as anybody in the world. Do people who decide to devote their lives entirely to the service of others, forsaking everything we'd consider luxuries, much of what we consider necessities, putting themselves at great physical risk just to serve others in the name of their faith. And they include yourself in this. Do they typically get a call that is like a moment, like I'm having a moment right now, like Isaiah seems to be having here, a conversation with God, or is it more, um, more subtle? You know, Mark, I think there's a lot of variability in that. Um, I've talked to a lot of, uh, as you said, medical missionaries, and, uh, you know, some, it really was, it was almost like a, an immediate enlightening, if you will, and uh, a calling. Um, whereas others, I think it was uh, more protracted and, and subtle over time. But I think part of it is, you know, I think, you know, it is a fair uh, analogy to, com- you know, to compare ourselves to Isaiah, that there is a recognition of our pl- where, where we stand with God. And, and um, I think, you know, for myself, you know, when I had that pro- that practice, number one, I said I had to, you know, prepare um, clinically and really develop 
my medical skills, but I also think there was a, a real internal preparation for myself too you know, really becoming more mature uh, in my faith as, as a Christian. And um, and uh, just really, I think God was preparing my heart um, to devote myself full time to this work. Um, so then Isaiah um, uh, says, so, uh, so Isaiah takes personal responsibility. He acknowledges the community si- sinning too. He's sinning, the community sinning. He's not in a good place. And then one of the seraphim flies to him with a live coal, touches his mouth, and says, see, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And then Isaiah hears the voice of the Lord. Yes. And I love this because, um, you know, one of the things I learned in just studying this scripture is, you know, you never want to come before the throne of God without coming to the altar too. And I think there's, um, you know, if I could just for a minute, talk about Old Testament and New Testament, you know, like in the Old Testament, there had to be the shedding of blood. And in the New Testament, um, you know, whether it was animal sacrifice or in the New Testament, the, you know, the ultimate sacrifice of of the Christ. Um, but there has to be that shedding of blood on the altar. And so I think that's what, you know, symbolically, that's what we're seeing here with the um, with the coal. Um, it's it's brought from the the seraphim brings it from the from the altar. And there's this cleansing um, as he touches his lips. As we said, that's the you know, the, the symbolic part of his body that represents the sin nature in his life. And, and, and so there's this cleansing uh, that takes place. There's this recognition of his sin and um, this almost like a confession. And, and then um, there's this cleansing that takes place uh, through the administration of this uh, hot coal on his lips. And then after it's administered, God says to him, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah does something that Moses didn't do. Yeah. Isaiah says, here I am, send me. It's a confident acceptance of the responsibility, whereas Moses says, I don't think you mean me, you mean others. I have a, I have a, I'm not a man of words. Isaiah enthusiastically embraces the call. He prepares himself for the call, and then he enthusiastically embraces it. Mark, that's a great contrast. I hadn't actually thought of that, but you're right. I think for whatever reason, there's this real acknowledgement by Isaiah that he, he is cleansed, you know, that he's been purified. He's been released, if you will, of his iniquities. And because of that, you know, he feels this uh, confidence that that comes through his relationship with 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 God. And so based on that, he now feels prepared and he recognizes there's this tremendous need because God just says, whom shall I send and who will go for us? You know, it's amazing that God uses the weak to do the mighty and um, and somebody has to step forward. And, and oftentimes, sometimes we do struggle like Moses. We We recognize our weaknesses. In his case, he had a, you know, he was not a man of eloquent words. And I think we can all come up with our own shortcomings, but um, but we have to recognize, as Isaiah did, that our power comes from God and not ourselves. That's, that's interesting. That's right. So Moses could have said, which he did say, actually, he said, I can't do it. Now, God thankfully persisted. But Moses initially said, I can't do it because he said, I'm not a man of words, among other things. Isaiah He's not saying that directly, but he's saying it in the preface by saying, "I'm a, no, he takes care of the problem, but he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. Then he yeah. takes care of the problem. In both cases, they had a very good excuse not to answer God's call. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and again, I think, um, Mark, because I, really, um, I really wanted to take this and generalize it and apply it to our own lives. But I think, you know, all of us can come up with um, excuses, if you will. There's, there's great rationale, great reason why we're not qualified to do God's work. Oh, right. Yes. The, the, the human mind, um, the, the creativity of the human mind when applied to rationalizing and justifying just about anything um, yeah. never ceases to amaze, right? Yeah, exactly. it never fails if you let it. Yeah, 
but it's amazing. And and honestly, that's one of the things that I love about the Bible. Thematically, if you look out, th- look throughout the Bible, God uses the weak to do the mighty over and over again. Yes. You know, you already mentioned um, Moses, um, but look at Joseph. Look at um, David, so- the eighth born, the kid who's the, 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 the shepherd in the fields. And he says, no, that's the son of Jesse I want. The kid yeah. in the field, the shepherd kid. Yeah, they didn't even, Jesse didn't even bring David forward. He brought all his other sons, and then he finally brings David. Right, he was saying, you wouldn't want that one. I'll just keep him out in the field. Yeah, and that's God. He 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 knows. I think that is almost a prerequisite, if you will, Mark, because we have to acknowledge our weakness. We have to humble ourselves before God and say, I am not qualified. Just like Isaiah says, you know, he says, whoa, I am a man. He says, woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. And I think we have to make that same step as Isaiah. Do you see any of uh, these dynamics when you speak with or counsel um, Christian doctors who are thinking about becoming medical missionaries and devoting their lives entirely to the poor? Do they, when they go through which what must be quite a decision process, devoting your life in an entirely different way than, than they were accustomed to growing up and being educated. Do you see any of these dynamics at play? Oh, all the time. I mean, I think, uh, as we sort of said, they rationalize or they, you know, I think there, there are a lot of people, they just, they, they, um, and, and these are Mark sometimes amazingly gifted and talented people. I mean, they have, uh, accolades that I could never dream of, but for whatever reason, they feel inadequate, you know, in and of themselves to make this step of faith and, and commit themselves to f- this full-time work. But, um, I think that's part of the process. You know, you mentioned, is, is there this sudden epiphany or is it a, a more subtle drawn out process. And I think that's the, you know, what they have to, they have to work through that. It's no accolade they can ever acquire is going to qualify them to do this work. And, and um, there's that step of humility and, and that step of faith that they take and, and trust in God that he will enable them to do it. Right now the, the uh, Torah says, um, I believe more than anything else, I think it's something like 80 times. It says, do not fear in a whole variety of contexts. It says, do not fear, which I think, demonstrates just how prevalent fear must have been because you wouldn't need to prohibit it so often in so many different ways if it was a rare occurrence. So it must be that common. Absolutely. Now, you've been in many places where you have knowingly voluntarily put yourself that would cause most people to be in such fear that they wouldn't even think about going. Um, but you you thrust yourself into those environments, whether it's COVID, which is probably for you the least of it, I mean, COVID was in New York. You could get treated. You've been in places uh, like where you have Ebola, diphtheria, war, where if, God forbid, you got injured or sick, there was no one who could help you. How do you overcome your fear and put yourself in these environments? Well, I mean, uh, Mark, a couple of things just to comment on that. To be honest with you, I think sometimes God just gives you this certain DNA. And and I'll be honest with you, like um, when I confront, uh, well, I'm, I'm not going to say now Ebola was different. I mean, that was a very fear provoking. It was uh, it was just because it was like this hidden enemy. It was like Armageddon. But many times when I confront a lot of these diseases, it's just that's just in my DNA. I I, I feel called to, to do that as a physician. Um, I, I will be extremely humble and acknowledge I, I do not like to fly. So uh, you that, don't like that's, to fly? I, I don't like to fly. So you don't mind going into an Ebola zone where there's a 50% death rate if you get it. That's right. 50%, right? Well, it can be. Yeah, it can be higher than that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you don't mind, you don't mind that, but you're afraid of flying? Uh, don't tell anybody, but that, that's, been, <laughs> <laughs> that has been a, a hard step for me. And uh, so it enhances my prayer life, but um, uh, I'm not sure if I'm going to quote this right, but I think all of us have fear, but 
I think true courage is stepping forward in the, in the face of fear. I think all of us have fear and it's okay to acknowledge and admit that, but true courage is, is to step forward uh, when you're confronting what scares you, you know, you still move forward and it's okay. It's okay to have that fear, but you can't be paralyzed by that fear. You have to take uh, steps of faith and go forward. So how do you um, deal with your rather pedestrian fear of, of flying? I mean, that's a fear a lot of people have. I mean, so you don't fear Ebola, you don't feel diphtheria, you don't fear going into Mosul in the middle of a war, but you fear flying. Yeah, well, when I was in Nepal in 2015, I think this contributed to it. Um, there was two earthquakes. We went uh, after the first one, and we were right in the um, epicenter of the second one. Uh, it was a 7.3, and we work a lot with the military, and the military had dropped us off the day before this earthquake occurred. And when the earthquake occurred, the helicopter, Huey helicopter number eight, I shout out to the Marines forever. I'm indebted to them forever. They came back to, on reconnaissance and it was very cloudy and uh, they flew right into the mountain. And so this same helicopter that we were on the day before and they all perished, all eight of them. And um, that that really intensified my fear of flying. But Mark, I, honestly, like I said, it really I, I pray um, earnestly. I, I listen to um, Christian music and I just have this passion uh that god has called me to do this work and so i just move forward so that's that's what i do lance thank you for such an interesting such an interesting and instructive conversation about this magnificent passage i had learned so much from you just in this conversation for instance i, I never really focused on uh the three sets of two and six one and what each of them meant among other things but um moving on from one text uh, this is always a concluding question uh one text which is um the sacred text of the Bible, to another text, which is Andre Malroux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. And he says on the first page of the book, he said, um, I just ran into a man with whom I served in the war. And he said, this man had saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, one, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. So Lance, in all of your years, doing missions yourself, uh, supervising missions, setting up missions, treating the poor and helping others to treat the poor in the most dangerous and forgotten places. What are two things that you learned about mankind? Two things I've learned about mankind. Well, I mean, you know, uh, honestly, Mark, I was just thinking about those really poignant comments that you just made. And so I'll just say, number one is um, there is so much disparity and um, suffering in the world. You know, you're a man of faith. I'm a man of faith. And to have that hope it does give us a sense of hope that I think a lot of people may not have if they if they don't have and exercise their faith. So my hope is, is in my faith and, um, you know, as a Christian. And then number two, commenting on the second statement you made, uh, when I think about that, I think about um, life as a journey. Every day, I think God is teaching me more and more as I take this journey of life. And uh, you never arrive. You're always learning until the day you die. Right. Well, God bless you. And uh, God bless the work you do. And just, uh, Thank you for it. And thank you for being such a great friend and for coming on The Rabbi's Husband. Mark, thank you so much. I learned so much from you today, too. And it's just a, always a pleasure to um, to talk to you. And I really do appreciate our friendship. Thank you.